Welcome to Podcast 42, Season 2, Episode 1, Who'd Have Thought It? This is the podcast that talks about life, the universe, and everything. Okay, after a bit of a hiatus, I'm back, and I've got plenty of plans for the forthcoming episodes. As you may or may not recall, I was in London, in my London penthouse hideaway recording studio, back in December 2020, there were a few joint Criscuit, the YouTube channel, and Podcast 42 podcasts. Does that make sense? I think it does. <laughs> These were mostly revolving around my bourbon and American whiskey advent calendar and 25 days of Christmas ukulele songs. However, this had to be curtailed due to a rather hurried evacuation to the Podcast 42 North Yorkshire Moors Sanctuary as London went into lockdown. This involved packing up very, very quickly and heading north. The Advent Ukulele Christmas songs, all 25 of them, continued, but I had to unpack all the Advent whiskies and sadly drink them. I just couldn't carry them. That was my excuse. But Christmas was as good as it could have been, considering the circumstances. Lots of movies, whiskey, beers, cheese, chocolate, more whiskey, a goat, long story, and plenty of music too. So to the new year, and I was back in the alternate London refuge, I couldn't go back to the other one, at risk of being discovered, and I laid low there until I could return to the safety of the desert lair, where I am as I speak. The house robots are back on high alert and patrolling the corridors once again, and they've just made me a nice lunch of camel and chips, no really, I just have had camel and chips, and I'm settling down with a nice mint tea, no whiskey or beer here sadly. So let's get on with it. A new episode, episode 1, season 2. I think I said 42 Palooza was season 2, but I think that was just a few special episodes, so we'll call it episode 1 now. Since I finished the 25 days of ukulele Christmas songs, there have also been a few more songs uploaded onto the YouTube channel. Check it out! Criscuit, C-H-R-I-S-C-U-I-T, Criscuit. Lots of ukulele shenanigans on there, and there'll be lots more content on there in 2021, due to my new acquisition while I was in London. But more about that in a moment. While I was in London, I spent a lot of time just wandering around, just walking the streets of London. As Ralph McTell once said, let me take you by the hand and lead you through the streets of London. Everything was closed, mostly, but it's still a great city to wander around. And there's a lot of history in the streets, and I do like that. There's background stories to all the streets, and I think, actually, I might include that in a few more episodes about different areas of London. But where was I? Well, of course, the most famous street in London for musicians is Denmark Street, and I had a few shopping trips there. Denmark Street, you ask? Some people may never have heard of it. It's a very small street, just off Charing Cross, that has all the best music shops. Well, how about a little bit of background on Denmark Street? That's a good place to start. I do love the history of London, and I will share a few stories of the history of, for me, one of the world's greatest cities. I've lived there on a few occasions, and spent a lot of time roaming the streets of the capital city. Okay, let's get on with it. Denmark Street. Where is it? It's near St Giles in the Field Church and Tottenham Court Road Station. The street was developed in the late 17th century and named after Prince George of Denmark. Since the 1950s, it has been associated with British popular music, first via publishers and later by recording studios and music shops. Let's take a walk down Denmark Street, shall we? Well, today, you turn the corner from Charing Cross Road right in central London, on the tourist track to be honest very close to the theatres on Shaftesbury Avenue. You turn off into this little street and you're into a hundred yards of history. However, right now, you'd do well to have a hard hat handy. The street is under siege from a massive redevelopment and the crossrail development already engulfs a good deal of the surrounding area. 
It was very hard to get in and out of some of the shops when we were there, but Denmark Street is in the process of transformation. But you continue your walk down there, and as you carefully dodge the builder's trucks and navigate the pedestrian diversions, you might just manage to catch a whiff of the historical importance of the place, especially if you have a vivid imagination and an eye for architectural detail. Now though, some premises are boarded up, and most of the shops that are open have had their working lives almost literally turned upside down. But through the years, Denmark Street has had at least three important musical lives. The first, lasting from the 19th century well into the late 20th, was as the home of the professional song business. The second, and probably the one I'm most interested in, began in the mid-60s, as the street started to attract music shop owners, and into the following decades it thrived as a key destination for guitarists and would-be players. The third of Denmark Street's lives is underway now, as I say, and planned for the very near future. Once the dust settles, the street frontages will remain, but there will be a series of new venues, and still, hopefully, plenty of guitar and music shops. Pete Townsend of The Who complained to a London newspaper, saying, In the 1960s, I bought fuzz boxes and strings for my guitars from Macari's Guitar Shop in Denmark Street. The Who did a backing vocal rehearsal with Shel Talmy in Denmark Street at Regent Sound in 1964. I used to shop at the drum store when living in nearby Warder Street, Soho. Boris Johnson, London Mayor at the time of this letter from Pete Townsend, and Camden Council, please make Denmark Street a heritage zone, otherwise a massive chunk of rock music history will be lost forever. Progress is important, but so are the local landmarks of our great city. The Save Tin Pan Alley campaign said, There is no equivalent anywhere in the world. Let's celebrate this wonderful place and bring even more music back to Denmark Street in all of its vibrant diversity. The developer actually reckons the result of its efforts will be a successful new quarter that will enrich and integrate with the surrounding well-established neighbourhood and not only safeguard but reinvigorate the area's fantastic music and cultural scene. Time will tell, I guess. Everything comes and goes. Let's hope most of it stays. But back in the day, if you were to take a walk down Denmark Street in the 1970s, the street had remained at the centre of the song business for some time, with many leading publishers in rooms and offices and cubby halls up and down the street's terraced buildings, the earliest of which date back to the 17th century, which kind of sums London up to a T. There's a lot of old stuff there. The inhabitants included old hands like Lawrence Wright, you can't go wrong with the Wright songs, and Mills Music, where 17-year-old Elton John, still Reggie Dwight, once had a job making tea. There were arrangers, copyists, musicians too, and publications. Lawrence Wright started Melody Maker at number 19 in 1926, but soon relocated to Longacre. And the NME, the New Musical Express, moved to number 5 in 1952, but also shifting to Longacre in 1964. Denmark Street became known as Tin Pan Alley, a reference to America's original song biz area in New York City, named for the racket made by so many pianists pounding on their potential hits. Easy for you to say. There were a few music shops in Denmark Street before the rock boom of the 60s and 70s. Francis Day and Hunter at number 23, for example, was advertising Gibson guitars in the 1930s, but probably the first we'd recognise as a proper guitar shop was the Musical Exchange, run by Joe and Larry Macari. They already had a couple of shops in the northwest reaches of outer London. They knew, though, that the centre of town was the place to be, and they opened at number 22 in the early months of 1965. Gary Hurst reckoned it was in the back of this shop that he made the original Tone Bender fuzz boxes, and it was the musical exchange shop that marked an early start to a shift in the street's business. The next significant arrival was Top Gear, opened at number 5 by Craig and Rod Bradley in March 1969. Sid Bishop, ex-guitarist from Mick Farron's band The Deviants, started there in 1971. 
What a year. Top Gear was untidy and scruffy, and that was part of its special charm, as are some of the shops today. You go in there and have that eclectic, charming feel of scruffy chaos. If you'd gone into Sound City on Shaftesbury Avenue or Selma's on Charing Cross, it was spotless back in the day. A lot of your hairy muso types would be put off going into a shop like that. Go into a place like Top Gear, and if anybody said anything wrong, they got a bloody mouthful from the owners. At first, what stock there was in Top Gear was all second-hand. Rod and Craig couldn't get accounts originally with the leading wholesalers for new guitars, so were dependent on people coming into the shop and offering up stuff. There was no vintage collector's market then. They'd buy an SG Junior for 50 quid and stick it on the wall for 95 quid, or buy a Firebird 5 for 200 quid and stick it on the wall for 300 quid. But it was supposed to be a nice atmosphere there back in the day. Rod and Craig were supposed to be very fair guys. Top Gear was a social centre too. Jimmy Page, Pete Townsend, Eric Clapton, Bernie Marsden, Mick Ralphs, Luther Grosvenor, all were regular visitors. Hank Marvin too. A lot of it was word of mouth though. Hank Marvin became a very good friend of the owners and used to go in there a lot. Never bought anything, just come in, have a cup of tea, have a chat, sit down for a noodle. But apparently the owner said, I don't think he ever spent a penny in our shop. So who did? Jimmy Page bought a Les Paul Custom, Chris Spedding too, Mickey Grabham, a Sunburst 59 Standard, Eddie Grant also bought a Standard, Mark Ball in a Custom, a Flying V, a White Strat, Keith Richards bought a National Resonator, oh, I love Resonator guitars, an old Rickenbacker Solid Body, very easy for you to say, and a Les Paul Custom. Lots of other famous customers there too. Bob Marley's Les Paul Special was one among many guitars that passed through Top Gear. They bought it from Dan Armstrong and sold it on to Mark Ball and but he was soon back for something with humbuckers, more about humbuckers later, and swapped it for a Les Paul Custom. Then Bob Marley bought it on his first UK tour in 1973. Sid of Top Gear said he'd only had it for a little while, and it fell forward off a guitar stand, the selector switch punched right through the rhythm treble surround, Bob brought it in and said look what I've done, oh you silly boy Bob. We showed it to Roger Griffin in our back room, and he cut it out and fitted a new surround, gave it back to Bob, and said here you are, you won't do that again, and he was over the moon. But I think that's the kind of story that demonstrates the genuineness of music then that we don't have now. I think it still exists among independent artists, but you would never get a modern day artist walking into a shop like that. But that's why these shops are starting to close. Top Gear itself closed in 1978 as they shifted efforts to their Strings and Things wholesale company. And number five became Rockers, run by Top Gear's amp fixer, Ron Rocker. The next beat boom for Denmark Street was in the 90s. And if you were to walk down Denmark Street in the 90s, Cliff Cooper was on something of a spree. He had the orange shop in the nearby New Compton Street, but that closed in 1978 and he opened Rhodes Music, apparently named after the explorer Cecil Rhodes, which was his first shop on Denmark Street at number 22. He said, when I first went into the street, it was almost derelict and still nearly all music publishers, he recalls. There was the Giaconda restaurant at number nine, where a lot of bands hung out, they'd park in Denmark Street, no yellow lines in those days, sleep in their vans overnight and play the marquee the next night. Bedford vans everywhere. I love the idea of that. In 1989, he'd taken over a second shop in the street, number 21, as EMI moved its sound library out of the building, and he created the high-tech Sutakina shop. Sutakina means beautiful in Japanese, later renting the basement to Gibson for its London showcase. Come the 90s and Cliff's takeover quest saw him open in 1990, the PA Centre at 23, formerly the Forbidden Planet Sci-Fi and Comics shop, which is now on Shaftesbury Avenue, Argent's Keyboard Store at number 20 in 1992, turning it into a brass woodwind and sheet music shop, World of Pianos at number 8 in 94, the famous Hank's Acoustics kept at 24, Sutakina moved to 10, are you with this? 21 becoming a second Rhodes Music and a bass shop opened at 22. 
a drum and merchandise shop at 28 in 1998, where Cliff located his own office up in the Crow's Nest on the fourth floor, while 23's basement became auction rooms and five floors at the Rose Morris shop at number 11 99. More about Rose Morris shop soon. So Cliff Cooper had turned Denmark Street into a sort of horizontal musical department store. Each shop was a specialist shop, and by now the street was getting so busy it was great, it was just music everywhere. The money was rolling in too, hundreds of thousands a week, almost all in cash. And there wasn't a shortage of villains in that area, so he devised an ingenious cash transfer system, making the most of his run of shops on the north side from Hanks at 24 to Argent's at 20. They knocked holes through the shop to shop and put in a pneumatic pod in a tube system. We'd send all the money through them, up to Argent at the end, Argent's an appropriate name, Argent meaning silver, for money, and it would be counted there. Then we had to get it from there to the bank around the corner. We had three different people with bags, the money in one of them, and the other two were decoys. They had to be very, very careful in those days. Cliff came up with a plan in the 90s, however, to buy Denmark Street. He had leases on a good deal of it anyway, so why not go for the whole hog? The freehold owner suggested a figure of around £11 million, which actually doesn't seem too bad these days. Cliff said, I was going to pave it across and turn it into a music street, a real music theme scene for the world. I couldn't sleep at night, I was so excited, he said. He got very close to raising the money, but was beaten to it by consolidated developments, which acquired the site in 1996 and is behind the current redevelopment work. I do think, had Cliff got control of the whole street, it would have been something up there with the likes of Beale Street and Memphis, that kind of thing. But it's still a great place. Hopefully the new redevelopment will give us that. Anyway, back with Cliff Cooper. He was thinking about reviving Orange Amps, which had waned in the 80s, in the late 90s. With the help of Adrian Emsley, he began to design a new range. I was lucky, he says, because Noel Gallagher of Oasis came into one of my shops. He'd used Orange to record his first two albums, and he came looking for Orange Amps. We introduced him to Adrian, and between us we came out with a design he wanted, shaped to the sound Noel wanted, Noel Gallagher. He bought it, and used it on television. That launched us again. And Orange was reborn in Denmark Street, designed in the back of number 22. With Orange's new life to deal with, Cliff decided to sell up his Denmark Street shops, several of which went to Rick and Justin Harrison of Music Ground, and by 2006, Cliff had left the street altogether. Around 2000, Rick Harrison had acquired number 5, turning Rokers, rather unsubtly, into Rockers. <laughs> as in, Rockers, E-R-S, as opposed to Rokers, R-O-K-A-S. And a little later started taking over other shops, including numbers 22, 23, 24, 25 from Cliff, and also number 4. Meanwhile, Chris Bryant took over a print shop on the corner of Charing Cross Road, and Wunjo went into number 20. Andy's, a fixture at number 27 since the 1970s and run by Andy Preston, a big influence on the street for years, became Music Ground, then Hanks, which moved from 24. In the following years, Denmark Street continued to build its image as a magnet for visiting guitar fans. But back in Denmark Street today, and as anywhere, it's hard work on many levels to keep a music shop going. Among the hoardings and hard hats, you can still see Wunjo guitars on the corner of Charing Cross Road, Music Room for Sheep Music at number 19, Westside MI guitars, and they're at 23. Hank's still there at number 27. And 6060 sounds, clickly clickly sound, <laughs> at number 28. Over the road, there's another music room and stairway to Kevin for repairs. Great name. And that's at number 11. Rose Morris, guitars and drums at 8. And pianos are at number 10. Same people. No Tom, guitars at number 6. And Munjo again at number 5. Regent Sounds, who sell guitars and Norden repairs, are at 4. They battle daily with the redevelopment chaos, and at the time I visited, 
There was also the uncertainty and restrictions of the coronavirus to deal with. But let's keep it light. As someone I know once said. Actually, more about that person very soon too. Keeping it light. <laughs> okay, Crispin Weir of Regent Sounds said that the works are set to continue for at least another year or two, adding that the developers are very aware of and the sensitivity of the historical importance of the street. If they're going to turn it into a wall-to-wall -wall Starbucks, he says, they could have done that years before the redevelopment process started. But it's the understanding that Lawrence Kershaw, the owner of Consolidated Developments, wants to create a sort of music quarter. That whole area has been redeveloped, especially with the advent of Crossrail, and Tottenham Court Road Station has been completely redeveloped. I just hope they do this properly. It's a real good opportunity to get Denmark Street back to what it once was. I guess it's all about just getting the balance right for everyone. You can't please everybody, I know, but it'd be nice to think that there's a bit of tourist appeal but pro musicians and beginners like me still appreciate the long tradition of Denmark Street. I guess I'm part of that tradition now, having made a few purchases there over the years. I used to go in mostly for sheet music and the like when I was performing on the stage or in theatres, but now I can go in and purchase instruments. But before I go on about that, if you have any interest in music at all, I just want to see something a bit more eclectic in London, then dodge off the main tourist and theatre route and check out Denmark Street, even with the building works. There's a lot of history there. Go and have a rummage around in a few of the shops. So what did I get? Well, hopefully by this point, I'll be playing some music, but fortunately I managed to avoid succumbing to the lure of a beautiful bazooki in the Rose Morris shop. Although it was only due to the logistics of getting it on a plane to come here that stopped me from doing it. A beautiful instrument, eight strings, and I'm sure I could play it. <laughs> Maybe one day. I think definitely going to add a bazooki to the music collection in the near future. Maybe when I get home to the Philippines one day, if that ever happens. Keeping it light. But I ended up with something else. I ended up getting a nice, shiny new Risa Les Paul electric tenor ukulele. Cherry Sunburst. Now if that's not a sexy name, I don't know what is. But this is an awesome piece of kit. It's a tenor ukulele. It's an electric tenor ukulele. It delivers high quality craftsmanship, but the power of an electric guitar and the compact travel size of a ukulele, which is perfect for me. The Risa LP ukulele was the first electric steel string they made, giving players incredible tones on the road. And the full mahogany construction provides sweet, warm tones with a mellow characteristic. Oh yeah, <laughs> nice. But it produces a bright high end with thick, firm lows. The neck and the fingerboard are designed to offer a comfortable playing feel, and it is very comfortable to play. And it also helps a beginner like me to change chords easily. I spoke about humbuckers earlier. Well, this is what I was going to talk about. There's a set of handmade humbuckers provided with the LP uke. It's got an incredible tonal range, with independent tone and volume controls to suit a range of playing styles. The humbuckers are the pickups on the ukulele. It delivers incredible tonal possibilities with Reese's high quality design and craftsmanship. The LP ukulele is the perfect companion for someone like me who wants some quality while they're traveling. Actually, let's have a bit more information about it. Because every detail of the Risa LP, I keep calling it Risa LP, or I call it the LP electric uke, or I call it the uke, I think I'll just call it the Risa LP, much easier. It's based after the electric guitar, but it's small ukulele size, as I said, it's perfect for a traveling musician. It's body, neck, the fingerboard, the solid mahogany, it's just beautiful. The cherry sunburst, it's just delicious. It creates a stunning and unique look. You'd recognize the look instantly on any normal size guitar. It is a beautiful piece of work. 
The two humbucker pickups are controlled via the independent volume and tone controls, so they have a volume control for each one and a tone control for each one. And it also has a three-way selector that lets players switch between them and blend them together. It sounds more complicated than it is. If I can do it, anybody can. But it's such a, a beautiful crisp tone that comes from it. Reese are a company from Germany whom design a range of stylish and unique ukuleles. From their popular Reese solid ukuleles to the fully electric steel strung ukuleles. Renowned for the high quality design and craftsmanship, Reese are suitable for a wide range of musical styles, with each series accommodating different playing styles. All of their ukuleles are small enough for travelling, making them perfect for musicians who travel. I keep saying that, but it's the perfect instrument for those of us on the road. Actually, those of us who've been on the road for almost a year now. Keeping it light. More on keeping it light shortly. <laughs> I'll get there eventually, don't worry. I've stolen that catchphrase, but I do like it. But this is almost a work of art as much as a musical instrument, and I'm very happy with it so far, although my acoustic skills are now being updated to this electric behemoth. It's much bigger than anything I've played so far, and I'm hoping it's actually a gateway to an electric guitar. Also, to complement the electric tenor, or the Reeser LP, as I must call it from now on, I must get consistent. <laughs> but I did need a good quality travel amp. After a little bit of research and asking the extremely knowledgeable custodians of Denmark Street, I plumped for the Roland Microcube. It came highly recommended. When I returned home and plugged my uke into it, I can honestly say I was impressed from the off. From such a small cabinet, I was expecting to get a tiny sound, but the sound was actually normal. Of course, it's not like that from a 40 watt monster, this is only 10 watts, but still quite enough to completely satisfy my outdoor playing and even use it indoor as a compact practice amp. It runs off batteries, it runs off mains. The effects process in this amp is very straightforward, which is exactly what I need. All the effects tweaking is comfortably handled only by knobs. Ooh. But without browsing through nested menus like in many other compact digital effects units. The left knob in the bottom switches between seven different amplifier emulators. There's the acoustic guitar emulator. This didn't really make my uke with the humbucker pickup sound like a real acoustic very much, but it simply creates similar to a clean tone, with something like twang to it that resembles acoustics. There's the JC Clean, which emulates the Roland JC120 jazz guitar amplifier, producing a nice clean tone and also works well as a kind of overdrive bypass if the combo is used with an external distortion pedal, which I don't have yet. The black panel gives a slightly overdriven tone. The Brit combo is a harder overdrive effect. The classic stack was the most useful effect for me, to be honest, adding some delay or reverb as it creates a smooth and warm distorted sound. The next one is the R Fire. It's the high gain metal distortion, but this is very unnatural sounding and it's a, it's a hard sound. There's also a mic option, which is for connecting a microphone into the guitar input for singing and also can be useful for making loud announcements. You can also put effects onto that voice. In addition, the Roland Microcube also has a line-in input where you can plug in an MP3 player or a drum machine to play along with. Then there's the rec out and phones output to play through headphones or plug the cube into the recording interface. The Roland Microcube really is an awesome all-in-one, headache-free, portable solution to get you on the road with your electric ukulele. It can sound very loud for such a tiny amp, and on good batteries apparently can run for 15 to 20 hours. Obviously there's the mains option, but it's really nice to have that option to go and maybe play in the desert. That's what I should do one time. All in all, two great purchases for me, and I'm happy to have some new toys to learn more about and hopefully add some different tunes onto the Criscuit channel. Remember Criscuit, YouTube, C-H-R-I-S-C-U-I-T. Go there, listen to my music, subscribe. <laughs> Actually, that reminds me, if you do have a request for a song or anything for the podcast, don't forget to email me at podcast42, all one word, 
words not numbers p-o-d-c-a-s-t-f-o-r-t-y-t-w-o at gmail.com easier than it sounds actually this is now turning into a bit of a music based episode I didn't expect it to do this but let's talk a bit more about what I've been listening to and watching lately and I'll keep it a bit music based I think for sure So what have I been watching? Let's start with something which is probably one of the best things I've seen for a long time. It's a small series of movies, one of which is an actual full-length movie, and some other one-hour shorts. Small acts. These are love letters to the black resilience and triumph in London's West Indian community. Directed by Oscar-winning Steve McQueen, these are vivid stories of hard-won victories in the face of racism. Steve McQueen's anthology of five films, it's a revelatory look at Afro-Caribbean neighbourhoods in Britain from the 1960s to the 1980s. I watched the first part of season one, Mangrove. As I say, this is probably one of the best things I've seen in a long time and is a must watch. Mangrove tells the story of Frank Critchlow, whose West Indian restaurant Mangrove, a lively community hub in London's Notting Hill, attracted locals, activists, intellectuals and artists. In a time of blatant racial discrimination, Critchlow finds himself and his drug-free business the brunt of relentless police raids. In a bid to stop the discrimination and ruination of their community base, Frank and his friends take to the streets in a peaceful protest in 1970, only to be met by police aggression. As a result, nine men and women, including Frank, leader of the British Black Panther movement Althea Jones LeCointe, and activist Darkus Howe are wrongly arrested and charged with incitement to riot and affray. It's a highly publicised trial at the time. Now, this is a moving portrayal of a peaceful man and his community being persecuted to the point of fighting back, but in a peaceful protest. I could imagine this could easily have tipped the other way. Well, actually, I can't imagine it. It's one of those stories that it's not that long ago. It's almost within my lifetime. This is the kind of story that needs to be told and also needs to help educate us that this should never happen again. It should not be happening at all in our current society. This is a must watch. I don't want to spoil it if you don't know the story, but it's well worth a watch. It's quite an emotional watch in parts. But keeping it light, what about the music? The music in this is fantastic. With the arrival of the Windrush generation came the sounds of the Caribbean. Although largely known for exporting reggae from Jamaica, the Caribbean has a whole host of sounds including soca, raga, calypso, Music is a big part of the Caribbean identity, and the sounds of the islands, specifically Jamaica, have gone on to influence hip-hop, ska, grime, garage and dubstep. The songs of a generation peppered throughout small acts give a more 360 view of what it is to be black, British and Caribbean. Obviously something I know nothing about. These songs, however, had an intrinsic part to play in British culture. They played a part in my culture. Music is political. Music was finding a home in a place that often felt hostile. The music featured in Small Axe Mangrove really adds an authenticity to the era and culture. Tunes such as Bob Marley and the Whalers with Try Me, The Calypso, Gene and Diner, When the Yankees Gone by Mighty Sparrow, Pressure Drop, the Scar classic Monkey Man, listen to that, Revival Reggae and 5446, that's my number, by the late, great Frederick Nathaniel Toots Hibbert. All of those songs by Toots Hibbert are a must for any audiophiles playlist. If you don't know who that is, listen to it. Toots Hibbert said that Pressure Drop was a song about karmic justice. It's a song about revenge, but in the form of karma. 
If you do bad things to innocent people, then bad things will happen to you. 5446, that's my number. The lyrics describe Toots' time in prison after being arrested for possession of marijuana. There's also the silky smooth Patty Page song, Changing Partners, written by Larry Coleman Jr. and Joe Darion, but in small acts performed by Luella Gideon. Then there's the Simmerip song, Skinhead Moonstomp, performed by the specials in this case. But Moonhop, it was a 1969 single by Derek Morgan, backed with the reggaeite's Harris Wheel. It reached number 49 on the UK singles charts. The British Afro-Caribbean ska and reggae band, Simmerip, covered Moonhop as Skinhead Moonstomp. Whilst unsuccessful on first release, in the wake of the two-tone revolution, it was reissued and charted at number 54. It's a great song. But then you throw in things like I Love You Because and After Loving You by Jim Reeves, and there you have a real gem of a playlist right there. These are a must-listen to. Actually, there are some excellent Small Axe playlists on Spotify right now. Just have a look. If you type in Small Axe playlist on Spotify, you will get a real musical treat. Okay, let's keep going on the musical theme, shall we? It's funny how this show has evolved into a music theme. I didn't expect this. I did a certain point of it, but <laughs> what else have I been listening to? Ah yes, one thing I did stumble upon was an online collaboration of the song by James, yes James again, Sometimes. This is by Nick Parker and Friends. I believe it was actually for the Marie Curie Cancer Trust. It's on YouTube and was created during lockdown in August in the UK and features some great artists. There are 56 tracks that had to be mixed together, immaculately done by Dave Draper. The first verse was arranged by Hannah and Abby from Sound of the Sirens. Semantics, go listen to Semantics. He recreated the second, then other artists provided vocals and guitar, such as Stuart Blakeledge, Brian Stone, Danny Gruff, Ed Bleach, Nick Parker himself, Evie Gotham, Kerry Lake, many more. Actually notably there was Lizzie Morris on the violin, Davy Malone on the baritone uke, Dave Giles piano and mandolin, Josh Hampson on drums and John Hare on trumpet and many other great musicians, many of which you can find these people on Spotify too. They're lesser known musicians, but they're very good musicians. This is an excellent cover in my opinion. It does what a good cover should do, by adding something new without taking away from the original. I actually found this on the James Facebook page, so even the band endorses it. And as I said, it was in aid of the Marie Curie Cancer Charity, so if you feel the need to watch, why not donate as well? www.mariecurie.org.uk forward slash donate. But check out Nick Parker, www.nick-parker.co.uk. A lot of these artists have a huge amount of music on their web pages. It's free. They're trying to promote themselves, but they're working very hard, so please support them. Some of Nick Parker's work is also on Spotify. Recommended tracks are Terry and June, which I actually covered on the Crisket YouTube channel, Es tut mir leid, a title which for both German and non-German speakers will make more sense when you listen to it. <laughs> actually, go, on, go and listen to my version of Terry and June on the Criscuit YouTube channel. C-H-R-I-S-C-U-I-T. Google it on YouTube. Google it on YouTube? Search it on YouTube. How about a bit about Nick Parker, actually? He's Glastonbury-based. He started gigging in his early teens, playing mandolin and singing in folk rock skiffle bands, Why? The, the band was called Why, not Why. And he spent the next 10 years around stages and hundreds of venues and festivals around the UK and Europe. In 1998, he called it a day on Why, the band Why, and started guitar band Tobamori. And after various false starts, a few flirtations with industry big boys, and a few tours in Germany, Tobamori played their last gig in 2004. But in 2010, Nick embarked on a solo career and has since released four full-length albums. 2010's The King of False Alarms, 2014's Angry Pork, great name for an album, 
and The Occasional Bird, and also 2017's Best of Venya, tracks from which have been played on various BBC music shows, that's where I first heard him, and also 2020's Make Sidauda. I don't know what Sidauda means, I should look that up, but that's live from Worcester, or Worcester for those of you in the colonies. But over the years, Nick has had the pleasure of sharing the stage with The Wedding Present, Bright Eyes, Actually, I covered a Bright Eyes song, Mariana Trench, also on the Crisket YouTube channel. Go and take a look. <laughs> oh, nothing like self-promotion. He's supported Frank Turner and Mike Peters, among others, and recently provided tour support for The Levelers, Ginger Wildheart and The Sinners, and Skinny Lister. Any of these names I call out, please go and check these people on Spotify or whatever music platform you use, because they're all there. And, and what I found, it gives me a, a broader range of music to listen to. Nick's songs are often tongue-in-cheek and cheerful, and on the rare occasion when fun is poked, usually at himself, it is always with a wry smile and an element of satire. Although primarily a solo effort, Nick often plays with his band, Nick Parker and the False Alarms, which is a folky, rocky country affair using guitar, fiddle, pedal steel, banjo, mandolin, cornet, accordion, keys, whistles, pipes, bass and drums. This is a proper musician's band, in my view, and they often have various members switching instruments when they can. At a recent gig, the band were described as a British arcade fire, something that Nick himself was apparently very pleased about. And at the same gig, they teamed up with Les Fruitbat Carter, no relation, to perform a nine-piece version of Carter USM's Only Living Boy in New Cross. And this is getting a bit ridiculous, actually, because I have also covered Only Living Boy in New Cross on the Chris Kitt YouTube channel. Go check it out. Click like, click subscribe. <laughs> this is almost an advert for the Crisket YouTube channel at the moment. I really should uh, behave myself. But when Nick Parker's not gigging, as is the case at the moment, he's busy making videos for his songs, which include a very time-consuming lyric video made using spaghetti letters and an even more time-consuming stop-motion animation of a live gig, which has recently been selected for inclusion in the Leeds International Film Festival. Check out his work. It's very good. As I said, the, uh, the website is there. I should really post this in the show notes as well. Okay, enough about Nick Parker, but this leads me nicely into one of the other artists that I did not mention, who featured on Sometimes by Nick Parker and Friends. I'll tell you about him now. So one of the artists that featured on Nick Parker and Friends was Scott Dunican, of the Bar Steward Sons of Val Dunican. Now I was fortunate to stumble across these guys in the fields of Avalon at Glastonbury back in 2019. I'm so happy I did. Actually a little bit about the Bar Stewards. This is from their wiki. I hope people don't mind me reading this, but... The Bar Stewards Sons of Valdunican are an English comedy, folk and parody band from Barnsley in South Yorkshire. Formed in 2006, they claim to be the hardest working comedy band in the UK, having played over 1,000 shows throughout the UK. They are best known of the UK's festival scene, having played at major festivals including Glastonbury, Cambridge Folk, Beautiful Days, Bearded Theory, Rebellion Festival, Witchwood Festival, Kate Rusby's Underneath the Stars Festival, Towsey Festival, Wickham Festival, and to an audience of 20,000 at somewhere ideally wish to go to at some point, Fairport's Crop Ready Convention in August 2018, for their 900th show. Playing mainly acoustic folk instruments, they take popular songs and replace the lyrics with their own comedy reworkings, often on themes completely unrelated to the original song. They have independently released 10 studio albums containing over 110 song parodies in total and a large number of live albums, presenting themselves as the long-lost children of Irish entertainer Val Dunigan. 
and claiming to be on a mission to keep their late great spiritual father's legacy alive. The various members of the band have adopted the singer's surname for their shows and wear brightly coloured hand-knitted tank tops in tradition to Dunigan's traditional knitwear. They also have some great tunes. The eponymous Lady in Greggs. Actually, Lady in Greggs, also covered badly by me on the Chris Cut YouTube channel. <laughs> There's also the saga of a man with new blue suede shoes, out for a few ills, a motley crew gig in Sheffield, called Walking in Man Piss, the eyebrow-related paint and back, and the allotment tribute that is the place of spades, and the very much of our time, the cockwombling song. There are many, many others, and to see them perform live is a must. Actually, I'd also recommend Scott's book called Songs in the Key of Tarn and Other Stories. Actually, a couple of quotes from the opening page of Songs in the Key of Tarn kind of sum up the musical motivations of Scott Dunigan, I feel. One from Val Dunigan himself. When you entertain the public, it's no good just having good music or singing. You must also have entertainment value, so people will go home having a good time. The next one was, I don't take it too seriously. I wouldn't wear these clothes if I was serious. The one thing that keeps me going is that I like to laugh at myself. It's not a concert you are seeing, it's a fashion show. Freddie Mercury. And the final quote from the one and only Mike Harding. If music be the food of love, why don't rabbits play banjos? I do like that one. I think what I appreciate most though about Scott himself from the Doonicans is the fervour in which he has embraced the current lack of gigs and lockdowns in the UK. Just, and I keep quoting, keeping it light. That's where it came from. He's keeping it light. And he described the need to entertain. Two quotes which have helped keep many of us going and entertained during adverse times. But I'm going to keep it light too, as I said. Scott Doonigan started Scott Doonigan's Big Need In back in the spring UK lockdowns of 2020. At the current time, I think we're up to show number 46. It's all available on YouTube. There's also a Scott Doonigan Big Need In Facebook page. But what is the big need in? I'd best describe it as taking one of my favourite 70s or 80s Saturday morning shows. See Tiswas, Multicoloured Swap Shop, Saturday Superstore. And if you don't remember what they are, Google them. <laughs> but then combining those with adult humour, a pub quiz, a few beers. Cheers for those of you who are drinking. Well put together clips from old live shows. The socially distanced allotment sessions, for example. And an army of puppets. Personally, I've seen the show evolve over the almost a year it's been running now and it really is fantastically put together. There are regular features such as Winona's wondrous word of the week from the delectable Winona, the legend that is roving reporter Gloria McGlumfer and the inimitable Gordon, oh sorry the crochet kid, he gets it sorted. If you're really lucky Morris while preparing for the pub quiz at the Pint and Puppet will appear when Morris dances play too and Percy is always around with his clipboard keeping everything in order. More recent feature is Barnsley Bob Ross, plenty of painting antics, and he brings even more joy than the original Bob Ross. There are many other creations that really keep things light and moving along, and you should never underestimate an emu, that's for sure. They've done the occasional specials, such as the Burns Neat special, which brought Burns on the Burns, which was truly very, very funny. As you can hear, I'm a bit of a fan of this show because it is very light, it's very funny, it's just good entertainment and it feels like a bit of a family entertainment. There's a family of people watch this and it has that, although it's online, it feels like it's in your front room. There are also some great special musical guests from time to time too, and Scott is always open to a few requests to cover songs. One of my personal favorites that he covered was of Fairport Convention's Meet on the Ledge. 
ironically, also covered by me on the Chris Kit YouTube channel. <laughs> not another one. You should go and listen to this. It's great. Again, it's all about the entertainment, not about the quality. Just remember that. <laughs> As I said, though, the Big Neat Inn is free to watch and always a good few hours well spent, especially with a few beers or whiskies on a Saturday night in lockdown. So stop watching Strictly, Ant or Deck or whatever is playing at the moment, whatever's plaguing your Saturday night TV, and try something a little bit different instead. And jump around with Scott, Amanda and the puppets. Actually, I didn't mention Amanda. She is Scott's very talented other half and puppet wrangler. After the show, there's also the live after show party on Facebook too. Tune into that for the shit raffle results for anyone who contributed to the Cheeky Monkey Banana Fund during the Big Night In. As I said, it's a free show, but there are methods to contribute if you feel the need. It's not compulsory, but you've got to remember these are professional musicians and these people must be supported. The Big Need In, as I said, is on YouTube, but it's also available on two highly sought after CDs. There's a previously released Scott Doonigan's Big Need In and the more recent The Big Number Two. Pretty much all of their music is available on Bandcamp too. Well worth your time to look through some of their offerings. In fact, the billing as the most hard-working band seems justified, as there is so much content on both the Dunigans website and on Bandcamp. Check out their work on www.thebarstewardsons.com. Again, I'll put that in the show notes if I remember. I really should do that more often. But Scott is a true entertainer. And as I say, a big mention must go to his better half and also very talented Amanda. And she just keeps the show together, I feel. <laughs> so as I said, check out YouTube for Scott Dunigan's Big Neat In, Neat N-E-E-T, coming in your ears from 8pm every Saturday and hopefully it won't be too long before we are all back together at live gigs. I actually spent the long journey to the desert lair watching show number 45 and it was quite surreal considering the surroundings of desert and camels along the way but it kept things light for me. So I think that's a fairly substantial official opening of season 2 of podcast 42. I think it's time to end with a quote I think. Now don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And also check out, like, and subscribe the Criscuit YouTube channel. <laughs> I've got to rename this the Criscuit podcast, I think. Anyway, so keeping it light still, a quote from Morris from the Big Need Inn. How'd you like those apples? Gordon, you alright? Hello. Hey, how are you doing? I'm not Gordon, I'm the crochet king. Hey up and welcome to Joy of Chuffing Painting with me, Barsley Bob Ross. Now, I've had letters in from people saying, Mr Ross, where do you get your inspiration from? Well, last night, before I went to bed, I smoked 15 woodbines, and then I had some cheese. And then whenever I got up, I painted this. I don't know if that had out to do with it, but it's better than a chuffing Banksy, innit? That lad's rubbish. Come back again next week, and I might paint thee a bag of ferrets.